Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Hi, my name's Jerry. If you haven't met me, um, it would be a pleasure to meet you after the service. I'll be bringing today's Bible reading. Please bow your heads with me before we pray to a God of all comfort and joy. Dear Heavenly Father, our Father of mercies and of all comfort and joy, as we come before you today, help us to hear and seek your redeeming work in our lives. Thank you for your living word through your spirit that we may consider and remember you. Please speak through Matt's words today and guard us from any unbelief and distractions. Lord, we pray and please help us to retreat from apathy and truly love your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cool. So today's Bible reading with my friendship card um, is coming from Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. So that's Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Starting from verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen, he was chosen by, by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled. And was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and, they, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Jerry. And good morning, everyone. Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1 there. We'll be having a look at that in a moment. Well, uh, it's good to see everyone here. Uh, This morning is actually the start of our new series, our new series leading up to Christmas. Uh, It's called The Wonder of Christmas. 
You know, because isn't Christmas just such a wonderful time of year uh, when all the decorations start going up and people are making preparations and the shops are busy and the buzz is going. It is great and the anticipation is awesome. Uh, but you know what? What's even more wonderful about Christmas is not so much just the, the trimmings and the everyday is what we have today, but actually the wonderful origin story of Christmas as a moment that celebrates Jesus' birth. And so the next three weeks, we're going to be covering uh, those first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel um, up to Jesus' birth, up right up to Christmas. Uh, it's going to be something that'll be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but you know what? Um, our first talk is going to be about the wonder of joy. The wonder of joy. So I don't know what uh, you talked about uh, uh, in uh, your moment of joy this year. Uh, maybe for you that moment of joy came in a sporting match. I mean, who can forget uh, Ben Hunt just running away with the state of origin in that last game there in Brisbane. The crowd just going wild and it's all gone crazy. They're just loving it, enjoying it. Uh, what about this? Matt Leckie. About a week and a bit ago, just scoring a goal against Denmark to put Australia in to the next round of the World Cup. Spectacular moment. You know, I reckon for a lot of Australians, these were the moments that they look back to. The, the joy experienced through a sporting moment. But maybe it was something personal for you. Maybe there was a major milestone that you can look back to and go, yeah, that was a moment. Uh, last weekend, a uh, couple here from our church celebrated their wedding and, that, and, that, and from all accounts it was a much joyful occasion, so congratulations to those guys. But hey, uh, joy, one of those brilliant feelings, but probably also one of the most fleeting of feelings too, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I found it weirdly hard to answer that question that we had up before and, and I came up with that question. See, what was that moment of joy for you? Can you really kind of put your finger on something or maybe the moments of sorrow for you are maybe easier to think of? You see, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because I feel like so much of our life is about seeking joy, happiness, about doing something uh, that is pleasurable, enjoyable for us. In some ways, I actually think that's why Christmas comes along and it's such a special moment because it's something that we look forward to. It's, it's supposed to be this time of joy. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I know it because my kids have been anticipating it. They've been counting down the days now for weeks and weeks. Uh, they know that you get good things at Christmas, uh, special decorations, presents, gifts, food, all the, right, all the rest. That's, that's it, isn't it, kids? See, I reckon, I reckon if you want to see joy, kids get it. You get it, don't you, kids? All those kids who are scattered around and amongst us with us this morning. Uh, you, could, you, got, you kids actually have something to teach us adults, I reckon, about joy. About joy. You see, because uh, you and I know that you get a bit older. You get a little bit more cynical. You know, maybe a little bit more like Zeke and you kind of go, yeah, Christmas, it's supposed to be great, but there's a heck of a lot of work to do and uh, you may or may not get something that you enjoy. Maybe you just don't even kind of even think of something. You know, people keep asking you, what do you want for Christmas? You kind of go, I, I don't know, I don't really kind of have something that would get me that excited. See, we want that joy, we want that moment of happiness and yet it just always seems just out of grasp. See, I think we want it, we live for it, you know, we want that childlike joy of opening that present, and yet we find it all too fleeting in our lives. Even Christmas, even the joy of Christmas itself 
is fleeting. So, friends, church, how does the Christmas story offer a true story of joy for us? Something that is beyond, beyond the fleeting joys of our world. Well, let's find out. If you've got a Bible, keep it open there to Luke chapter 1, which Jerry read out to us. And uh, read those first few verses with me again. Chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to run an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So in the introduction to Luke's Gospel, he's really writing as an investigative journalist, isn't he, right? He's been out there. He wasn't an eyewitness himself, but he's saying, well, I sought out to go and chat to all the eyewitnesses, and, I'm, and I sought to write an account of Jesus' life and all the things that have happened, the things that we have heard about, the things that those eyewitnesses and teachers have been telling us about it. Now, Luke himself is a physician. You might know this. He's actually a doctor. And I normally, you know, being a doctor myself, I normally don't think of doctors as being real great journalists. Uh, but actually, when I thought, stopped to think about it, actually, you know, I mean, what is everything in a doctor's kit? You know, I was thinking about when I was playing uh, doctor with my kids, uh, when you have one of those little doctor's bags, I mean, you got like stethoscopes and blood pressure cuffs and little tendon hammers and all the rest. All of those things that are meant to help you investigate a symptom or a problem or, or whatever made up disease that my kids have come up with. Uh, that's a doctor. They are investigative by nature. So what is Luke doing? Well, he's after the pursuit of truth, the truths about Jesus, about his life. And he's writing to a bloke called Theophilus, right? Now, Theophilus, now some people think that Theophilus is actually just a sort of generic word for anyone who loves God, uh, because Theo means God, Philo means lover, so his name literally means a lover of God. Uh, but probably more likely, Theophilus is, is, is he's, he's not actually a Jew. His name is a Greek name. Uh, so he's probably some sort of high-up Roman official. Someone who's maybe actually paid for uh, this whole investigation. Maybe he's a friend of Luke's. Either way, Luke here is inviting this investigative piece of journalism. Now, you might know him, Luke himself refers to it, that we have four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible... But actually, Luke is the only one who gives us the most detail about Jesus' birth. And the only one who actually writes, as we're going to see this morning, about the birth of Jesus' cousin, John. So you read on with me, chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Right, so what do we see? The scene is set with an elderly couple unable to conceive. Now, some people even uh, peg Elizabeth as being probably in her 70s or 80s even uh, by this stage, so well beyond Uh, normal natural childbearing years Uh, and in first century Jewish society infertility was something that was kind of looked down upon right Uh, you were kind of marginalized you probably thought of without all the kind of medical understanding of it kind of thought of as maybe maybe you were responsible for this in some way maybe this was a curse or a judgment upon you 
Now, it's interesting because the Bible is actually full of infertile heroes. Heroes, people who are faithful to God and continue to follow God in spite of their childlessness. I mean, it takes us right back to Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who was so old it was laughable, and yet uh, she had a baby and became the mother of a nation. But how are they described? Well, they're described as righteous, observing all of God's commands blamelessly. If you ever want a, a description, a positive description of someone in the Bible, here it is. Here it is. And it's a statement to say, hey, there was no connection between their moral goodness or badness and their infertility. No, they were completely blameless. That wasn't to blame. And yet the other thing used to be picked up is that there was no sense of bitterness against God for the fact that they hadn't had a child. No, no, this is a godly couple with a deep trust in God. You know, a great example for anyone who maybe has experienced a lot of hardship. Maybe 2022 was a hard year for you in lots of ways. A perfect godly example of a blameless couple continuing to trust God. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. So Zechariah's there doing his priestly duty. He's there in the temple and there's smoke and incense and things going on there. And an angel comes and it startles him. Now in the Bible, the angels are, are messengers. They're heavenly messengers. Right? They're not little kind of babies with little kind of bows, shooting bows and arrows like you might see in some uh, paintings. No, they're, they're these big, bright, glorious, heavenly beings who come and deliver a message. And, uh, uh, and Zechariah responds exactly how you would when there's suddenly a, a big blast of light and a glare of, of this angelic being appears beside him. Terrifying. Like a deer in the headlights. But the angel actually brings good news. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of, the, of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. Now, church, this promise to Zechariah would have been absolutely astounding to him. You can imagine his disbelief. I mean, uh, here we are, wrinkly old couple, uh, you know, childless for our whole lives, suddenly going to have a child, even at, at our age. But you can also imagine the joy of this message. You know, the birth of any baby is a joyous moment. You know, back at medical school, I remember that there was this saying that used to go that the most happy person in the labour ward was the medical student. It was the medical student. You know why? Because they got to be part of these amazing moments in people's lives without any of the pain or responsibility or the aftercare. 
And they'd say, you know, the, the, these, you know, wide-eyed, you know, young, probably, you know, 18 or 20-year-old medical students would kind of come out. I mean, sort of partly amazed at what they've just seen, but also partly just being like, wow, wasn't that a special moment? See, there is something that is just wonderful about the birth of a child. But that's not the only joy here. That's actually not the only joy. You saw it there. It'll be a joy and delight to you, yes, as a young baby boy for you, elderly couple. But many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Because he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. It's not just any baby that you're giving birth to. This is going to be one that's going to cause much rejoicing and, and, and joy amongst many people. But why? Why is it? What's he going to do? So you take a look at verse 16 again. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that might feel a bit cryptic to you. So I'm going to actually give you 30 seconds to have a chat to someone next to you. Why do you think this is a reason to rejoice? Ask that question to the person next to you. Why do you think this is a reason to rejoice? Have a chat. See if you can work something out. wrap you up there. I'll wrap you up there. It's sort of not really a straightforward thing, is it? I mean, he's going to come and do something great, but what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Since he's going to turn people back to God. Now, in the Bible, this is a concept known as repentance. Repentance. You might know this as a doing a U-turn. As if to say, hey, once upon a time, you were heading away from God in the other direction. And repentance means to want a U-turn, turning back to God. Now, it's a very Christian idea because uh, the whole story of the Bible, it's a story of how we, as humanity, turned our way from God. We snubbed our noses at God. We turned away. We ignored Him. We rejected Him. And we, and we turned away from the God who gave us life. And this baby boy, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, will turn people back to God. In the spirit and power of Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, who uh, was prophesied to come back and prepare the way for God. See, what he's actually saying is that uh, we're turn- he's going to turn people back to God, both on an inward way, 
that in people's hearts they will turn back to God, but also in an outward way, that, that in a way uh, they would turn from their disobedience. They would actually become reconciled with each other in their relationships, in their relationships within a family even. And he's saying that these are the conditions to get ready for God. Now, I remember uh, back in, when we used to live in Sydney, uh, there was this moment, about 2007, I think it was, um, there was the Apex Summit in Sydney. And uh, uh, the whole city kind of had to get locked down for it because he had kind of the big, big guns from all over the world coming together. You might recognise a few of those faces. Uh, and I remember that because our apartment block was on a major road in Sydney. And uh, on that day, they, they actually completely cleared the road. Like, you weren't even, literally, you weren't even allowed to go and park on the street or even drive down the street. Because the motorcades would kind of come right down, uh, uh, right down Anzac Parade there in Sydney, and, and and head up to the Opera House where they were meeting. See, such were the preparations for someone of importance. But what is Luke saying here? Luke's saying that John's going to come, and he's going to prepare the people for God, and where God comes. It's not just about clearing streets, it's about clearing out the muck in our hearts, our sin, our rebellion. It's clearing out the muck of our relationships, it's clearing out the muck of our disobedience. That's what it takes to come back and to be reconciled with God. That's what it takes. And that sounds like a lot of draining work, that doesn't sound like a reason for joy. But see, there's a deep truth beneath all of this. And the truth is this. That the deepest and most ultimate joy that you can have in life is to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Now, the average person on the street is not thinking that. They aren't thinking that maybe God would be the source of my joy in life. Uh, You know, it's all worldly experience and food and sports and material things and whatever else. But the Bible's claim is that there is something deeper and more satisfying and more unshakable about joy that can't be found in the pleasures and experiences of our world. Yes, it's even greater than winning a World Cup or the state of origin. It's, it's greater than the best Christmas gathering or gift that you could get. You see, church, when you have, been ignore, you have ignored and become estranged from God, you know what you've done? You've cut yourself off from the God who made this world and everything in it, everything that you can enjoy. You've cut yourself from the source of all joy in this world. You see, if there's a creator who made everything that is good for us to enjoy and we have ignored him, rejected him, cut ourselves off from him, we have cut ourselves off from the ultimate source of joy. You know, an illustration I love for this is the idea of cut roses. Or any cut flower, right? They might look great. You can still enjoy them for a few days. But as soon as, once they're cut, once they're cut off from the source of life, they will eventually wilt and die. So you see, church, we said at the start, like, we, we have these deep yearnings for joy. We want them. And even we think across this year, maybe we've struggled to even find them. And even our attempts to get to grasp them, it feels like you're grasping at air because it's so fleeting. And I reckon the last few years have shown that to us, hasn't it? 
Now, whether it's sickness or injury, relational conflict, war, financial, uh, financial downturn, uh, rabid pandemic viruses, there's so many things in this world that make life tough will take away your joy. And all of the earthly joys, none of them can satisfy us. Why? Because we're cut off from the ultimate source of joy in our world. We try to escape this world through those temporary moments into our games and movies and whatever else. But while we're cut off, there can only ever be a fleeting moment. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia series, you know, great fantasy series, actually, actually said this. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. See, what he's saying that for him as a writer, as a, as a, as a thinking person, he's saying, well, all of our fleeting joy points back to the fact that, that maybe all our earthly pleasures, they were never meant to satisfy us. They can't satisfy us. No, they're, they're little fleeting moments that actually point us to, to something that there is greater joy out there, but it's not something that can come from this world. It's got to come from something beyond it. Something with a lot more permanence. And so you see, church, that when you are reconciled to God, you are reconnecting to the God who is the source of all joy and all the good things that we enjoy here on earth. You are reconnecting to the one who can sustain that joy. The one in whom, no matter how bad things might get here on this world, when you're connected to God, it won't shake you. You have a foundation from which you can enjoy the good things of this world. If you have uh, been on a nice holiday or you've, you've had some, a nice meal, lately, you can enjoy that out of thanksgiving from the God who gives you the source of life and joy. I mean, just look at Elizabeth and Zechariah, a lifetime spent childless. And yet, they never became bitter. They were able to stay faithful. I mean, how do you keep going like that? Well, you can when you're in relationship with God of this universe. Charles Simeon put uh, the Christian experience of joy like this. Enjoy God in everything and enjoy everything in God. That's the Christian relationship to joy. Ultimate joy comes from God, so that means we want to enjoy God. But actually, as we enjoy God, we're actually properly able to enjoy the other things and experiences of this world without being such a fleeting experience that it would be there for one second, gone the next. Well, our hope and joy is not based in this earthly world. But don't just hear it from me, okay? Maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're, you yourself are a little bit skeptical about all this religious thing and, uh, you know, maybe, yeah, good for you religious people here. Uh, I was actually reading an article. Uh, it was written uh, by an atheist uh, for the Guardian newspaper. Uh, he's kind of one of those self-help guru type guys and uh, he was actually just an- analysing uh, all the studies about happiness, And one of the things he discovered was that actually religious people are proven, scientifically proven, to be happier, to be happier and healthier. Uh, Here's a little snapshot of the article. Now, Now, this is what he actually says. He says this. 
You may find yourself shaking your head in scepticism, but the evidence base linking faith to better health has been decades in the making and now encompasses thousands of studies. Much of this research took the form of longitudinal research, which involves tracking the health of a population over years or even decades. They each found that measures of someone's religious commitment, such as how often they attended church, were consistently associated with a range of outcomes, including a lower risk of depression, anxiety and suicide, and reduced cardiovascular disease and death from cancer. You see, this is what the scientists had concluded from all the range of studies that they'd done, and you pull all these things, they reckon it comes down to three things. They reckon it comes down to three things. Number one, a social connection with a community of like-minded people with a shared set of beliefs and a commitment to the care of each other. Now, if you've been part of church, you just know this to be true. You probably take it granted. You don't even notice it after a while that you can actually belong to a group of people who actually share the same convictions about life and will care and support each other on that conviction. You don't even probably realise actually most of the world don't have that. The second one was positive emotions such as gratitude and awe. Here's what it says in the article. It says, in the Christian church, you may be encouraged to thank God in your prayers, which encourages the cultivation of this positive emotion. It's a form of cognitive appraisal, says Van Capellen, who's one of the study writers. It's helping you to reevaluate your situation in a more positive light. Or, meanwhile is the wonder we feel when we contemplate something much bigger and more important than ourselves. This can help people cut through self-critical ruminative thinking and to look beyond their daily concerns so that they no longer make such a dent on your well-being. Who would have thought the, the, the whole idea of coming together, that we feel like we've got a connection with God, that we can sing songs of praise to Him, might actually be good for your mental health. And the last one there was a sense of purpose, that there is a reason and a meaning to our existence. See, it's interesting because the author then goes on to say, well, look, religions kind of have this. They just have this inherent in it. And this kind of comes as a package. But, you know, maybe if you're an atheist like me, maybe we can kind of reconstruct this in, in other ways. You know, go and volunteer and, and, and go and find a purpose that's worth living for. And they're kind of, you know, it's trying to, trying to grasp at some of the results without realising that there is a common connection with these things. Right? You and I know this. If you have been part of a church for a long time, if you are a believer in God, you probably already know this. That it all comes down to our deeper connection and relationship with God. That's the thing that's just so missed by the author. It's like he understands, he sees the goodness of it, but then he doesn't want to believe it. And so he'll find another way to kind of get the, the goodies without having the belief. Now, I'm not saying that you should believe simply to get the good stuff. Ultimately, I think that is also a futile exercise. But maybe if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I actually want you just to consider that maybe there is some truth, a deep truth that roots the lives of Christians, our roots into a God who loves us, who loves the world, who loved the world so much and he loves you and me that he would send his one and only son to come and die for us. See, friends, if that's you, well, there is a call here. Come back to God. Repent, be reconciled to God. Return to relationship with the, the, the God of this universe, the source of all joy. 
keep coming for the next few Sundays or after Christmas. Learn more about us. We're going to keep unpacking the Christmas story. Chat to your friends about why it is that they believe. Come along to one of our Hope Explored courses. But see, if you're a Christian, you probably know all this already, don't you? You probably know all this. See, you know all what this secular author has observed. You've experienced it in some way. How good is it to live out life as part of a community of people who have joy in God? But there is a challenge here too for us, isn't there? There is a challenge. And that is to keep living out of the deep joy that we can have. To live out of the fact that we can know relationship with God. We can know forgiveness in His name. That we can know we've got a sure future with Him into eternity. That there is a purpose and a meaning to our lives and that we're not just random experiments on a planet of mindless evolution. See, the challenge, I think, is to start every single day. Starting every single day out of joy in that relationship with God. Because He saved us. Not just to live obedient, dutiful lives, but to live lives of joy, thankfulness, awe, wonder at what God has done for us. See, maybe you're actually here and you know that you've been running away from God. Maybe you've grown up as part of the church and life's been hard and so you want to just run the other way and get away from from church and from people and from Christians. But maybe now's the time to come back to God. There's no guarantees that life will be perfect for you. I mean, again, Elizabeth and Zechariah, pretty tough life, I reckon, for them. But when you've got a deeper joy that can't, can't be shaken. Well, friends, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Depression, deaths in the family, childlessness. Deep down, you will always be reconciled and connected to the God who is the source of all joy. As the author Tim Keller puts it, there is a joy available that the deepest grief cannot put out. No circumstantial person can take away the joy that God gives. See, church, when you live out of a place of deep joy, people will notice. People will notice how different that is. Out of our very lonely and pleasure-seeking society, that can never kind of quite find that. That is the thing that we have in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for Christmas. Not just because of all the the trappings and the celebrations, the gifts and the, and the food. But Father, because this is the day in which we remember that Jesus came for us. Lord, we thank you for his cousin John who comes along and he's, he starts that process. He models what it means to repent, to turn back to you, to ready our hearts for you. Father, we pray for those for whom today might be a moment in which in their heart of hearts, They know they need to turn back to you. They know they need to reconnect with you, the source of joy and pleasure in this universe. Father, we pray that they will seek you, that they will find you, and that in this world of loneliness and sorrow, 
that, that Father, we can all have the deep joy of being reconciled to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.